You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Le doule, c'est le chapeau. Et le porteur de doule, c'est le doulos. S'il y a un porte de doule, c'est-à-dire qu'aux yeux des gens du milieu, il en croque. Je crois qu'on n'a plus rien à se dire, il est tard. Attends, on a autre chose à te demander. Pas me confondre avec les gens qui rentrent dans votre bureau en marche arrière. J'en croque pas, moi. Le doulos est un indicateur de police. Passez-moi l'inspecteur Salignari. Qui m'a balancé On le craint, on tente de ne pas le fréquenter. Alors, c'est ça le fameux Cilien Cilien est correct. C'est pas ce qu'on dit à Paris. Le doulos jouit d'un statut particulier, tant dans le milieu qu'à la grande maison. En somme, quand on ne vous aide pas, vous êtes perdu. Ce n'est pas un hors-la-loi ordinaire, mais sa vie est plus dangereuse. Dans ce métier, on finit toujours clochard, ou avec quelques balles dans la peau. Je trouve cette ordure de Cilien. J'ai peur. Si tu me connaissais comme beaucoup me connaissent, tu n'aurais pas peur de rester avec moi. Le doulos, une tragédie du mensonge, le mystère à l'état pur, un homme pris au piège. Le doulos, où vous ferez la connaissance de Cilien, Maurice, Klein, Fabienne, Thérèse, Gilbert, Nutetio. Un film de Jean-Pierre Melville. Prochainement sur cet écran. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Ms. Sam Deegan. Hello. Also back in the booth is Mr. Ken Stanley. Hello. We kick off French Month with a look at Jean-Pierre Melville's Les Doulos, the second of his several and seminal gangster films. Les Doulos is the story of two men, Cillian, played by Jean-Paul Belmondo, and Fogel, played by Serge Reggiani. They are denizens of the underworld, where loyalty and honor are everything. When a burglary Fogel has planned goes awry, he thinks that it's Cillian who set him up. Is Cillian the titular doulos and informer? We will be discussing that and a lot more things to spoil the film as we go along, so if you haven't seen Le Doulos, turn off the podcast and come back after you have. So Sam, when was the first time you saw the film and what did you think? Um, I want to say I saw it probably about like 12 or 15 or so years ago, because I happened to rent La Samurai and it was, uh, this sounds really cheesy and probably kind of pretentious, but it was like a religious experience. Like when I first saw Melville, my head exploded and I decided, okay, I, now I have to find all of the other films too. Not too long after La Samurai, I managed to find uh, Ludulos as well. And it just, I mean, I've seen all of his films many times at this point, and they're, I, I think they're all 
pretty perfect or close to perfect, but especially this one. How about you, Ken? I picked it up during a Criterion Collection sale, thinking that, who knows, maybe someday I'll get to watch this in preparation for a projection booth show. <laughs> for whatever reason, this is one that fell through the cracks, and I only recently watched it and watched it again and watched it again. One of the things that makes me kind of sad about how I instantly just tried to see them all, because I kind of wish I had left a few to watch, because that first time, I, I feel like it's he, he just does so many amazing things, not only with script and character, but with the cinematography. It just, I'm always jealous when people say, oh, you know, I saw this Melville movie for the first time. There are several that I have left around that I have yet to see, and it's mostly because of that reason, because I still want there to be Melville films for me to watch for the first time, because I love his stuff. Believe it or not, I have Quentin Tarantino to thank for this one. He would name-check Melville all the time, and so I had had... Le Dulo and Bob Le Flambert and a few other films on a watch list. And this is going back to working at Blockbuster Video and finally figuring out, I think it was probably 1994, 95, where I figured out how I could look up films in the Blockbuster computer and then find what store they were at. So I finally found Le Dulo and had to drive, well, from Wyandotte all the way up to Southfield, which was not an easy drive back then when I'm, you know, just in my early 20s. It was quite a brave new world for me and went into a video store, found it at that particular blockbuster because they said they had it in stock, went home and watched it, and I was blown away. I love this movie. And I have to say, watching it again, watching it on Blu-ray, it is such a different film than what I saw, which was a shit-ass VHS version of it. But I had seen it in the interim. I actually, uh, I can't remember who put it out. Probably Janice Films or somebody had put it out in the meantime, theatrically. So I went and saw it at the DFT. Each time I see this movie, I catch new things and I catch new layers. It's a... I can't say it's a simple story because of the way that Melville tells the story, and I love the way that he withholds information from us. And I can really see why this was such an inspiration for Reservoir Dogs because of the way that we think that things are going one way, and then there's a reveal towards the end that makes us reconsider the entire rest of the film. So if you watch it a second, a third, a fourth time with the knowledge that you get the first time, it makes the movie such a different experience. Just to point, uh, just so I want to make sure that you still know, realize that wind out to Southfield is still a difficult ride. It is okay. Good. I'm glad. You know, I thought maybe I was being kind of a wimp there, but I mean, no, 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 no. Especially if you get there around rush hour and oh, it's a mess. Good lord, no! I would never do that. This is right in the middle of Jean-Pierre Melville's. Ah, just unfortunately small body of work. He directed 13 feature films. There are six features after this, six features before. This is right dead in the middle. His second time that he's using the gangster milieu. I mean, I guess you could consider it the third time if you count two men in Manhattan as well. But he creates this world that is not Manhattan. It's not Paris. It's this kind of world in between and the way that he will use 
English names for things and call clubs by English names rather than French names. I just love that he has this such an artificial world for these people to interact in. That's something that in a way reminds me a little bit of somebody like Fassbender, where you have all of these reference to places in the real world or places in history, but the world that you're sort of diving into is supposed to be, I don't want to call it a fantasy world because it's not, you know, I don't want people to think it's that sort of genre, but Volker Schlondorf, who worked on this film when he was very young, said that it was an artificial universe. And I feel like that's the best way to think of all of Melville's films is the worlds are so carefully constructed, but because he often deals with crime thrillers or film noir, in a weird way, they feel familiar. So I think to your point about how the more times you watch some of these films, the more you get out of them you start to notice these little details. And one of the most important things about this film is in 1963, when it was made, these hats that they all wear were not in fashion. And so somebody watching it at the time would have noticed that kind of detail. Also, I don't think we've said this yet. Dulos, it means a hat. Uh, It means the sort of type of hat that they're wearing, but it's also a slang term for a police informer. For a lot of Melville's films, for probably about half of them, there is kind of an obvious English language translation that's usually used for the film. But for the other half, there's not. And this is definitely in that category. So we're not trying to be difficult. It just there's no good English language title. We talked about Once Upon a Time in the West before and the way that Leone would take American Westerns and translate them through Europe and give them back to us. And this is very much that taking of American gangster films, translating them through this French mind or European mind and giving them back to the world. And it has this interesting taste. You know, it's like taking a hamburger and preparing it in French, you know, and being able to, and I guess that's the Royale with cheese, but you get (laughs) this whole different flavor to it. You know, you're not going to get foie gras on a hamburger, but you might if Jean-Pierre Melville served it to you. Your point about him kind of using these costumes to mythologize this idea of the gangster, that's something that is just part of our cultural exchange now, like everyone recognizes that, but Melville was really one of the first people to do that. Because when film noir came out, I mean, now, you know, people can rattle off all of these classics and take it pretty seriously as a movement. But at the time, a lot of people just thought of them as as B films. But Melville taking those American characters from the 40s and putting them into these French films in the 60s was really the turning point for how they became mythologized in a more international way. And I know, Mike, that you mentioned he made a couple of other gangster films before this, but I think this is the real turning point in his filmography because Bob Le Flambeur, which is his first movie with a gangster, has a totally different tone and It doesn't have any of this sort of artificial combination of American culture and French culture. And 
Two Men in Manhattan, people talk shit on, which makes me very sad. But I think with that, I love that film, but I think he still wasn't quite there yet. And I think Ledulos is where he really kind of arrives as a director of crime thrillers. There's something that these days you would call it, oh, it's an Easter egg, you know, and there would be a video where it <laughs> says 27 things that you missed in Ledulos. And one of those things would be the shot at the beginning, having Monmar in the background and showing the distance between Monmar and where this film takes place. And that is very much, in my opinion, Melville saying, you remember Bob Flambert? You remember how Monmar was throughout that entire film? Well, here we are now in this whole different world. We are miles away from that. Time has passed. These are different characters. You're not going to get the suave Bob in this. You are now dealing with this whole other world that is near the railroad tracks. It is run down. It almost looks post-apocalyptic. You have this one house that is seen in this area. And I love that we start in this house. And even before that, we start with these opening credits, which again, I think is... Melville playing with everything in this film. It's not just, you know, looking at, uh, you know, the characters, the story, the lights that he's even playing when it comes to the credits and that you've got, uh, Serge, uh, Reggiani walking, but the first name that you see is Jean Paul Belmondo. And it comes up in such a way that if you're not paying attention, you think that that might be Belmondo walking down the street and that it is or walking near the side of the road in this again this really determined pace i love the way that the camera follows him i love the way the camera tips up and shows the underside of the bridge and then goes back down you've got this great jazz score going on there are so many times in this movie where you are going to get confused as to whether this is reggiani or belmondo and that plays such a crucial part at the end of the film. I'm glad I said spoilers, but that there is the confusion between the two characters, which is something that he's playing with from almost the very first frame. Yeah, I think it's a great setup. I love how uh, the it's a tracking shot, uh, uninterrupted tracking shot, except for moments where you see just pitch black. And all along, he's walking along this rail that's got these bars on them. Then you look up and there's a grating in the uh, overhead on the overpass. So it's kind of like he's emerging from prison, which we find out he did. And uh, Gilbert has taken him in, but he had been in prison. So in a way, it's a tracking shot. And, and of course, Melville being a cineast, uh, could have been a nod to Touch of Evil, starting a film that way. Uh, there are references, I caught references, to that film and to Psycho and uh, other little things here and there. So it's a combination of all these different elements that drew me in immediately. It's such a brilliant opening. And you you really have to watch it twice to kind of get this going into it. But his main theme, at, at least in the way that the plot connects to the visual world, seems to be all about how appearances are deceiving. And I just love the fact that he uses the hat in a literal way and in a symbolic way, because as you pointed out, you know, it covers Reggiani's face at different points in the film and you can't tell exactly who he is. It's also obviously in a symbolic way because we come to figure out that somebody's the informant and he leaves us really guessing for a lot of the film who that could be. 
But just that opening, if you watch this back to back with Bobble Flember, it's so dramatically, and I think you're right, intentionally different. I love that scene with the house in the middle of nowhere. And I definitely agree with some of those psycho references. There are times in the opening where it almost feels a little bit like a horror movie, or like at least kind of expressionistic. I thought the house in particular, the very first shot where you see the house, I thought it looked pretty gothic. You expect a horror movie to take place in this place, and especially that there's nothing on the walls, and it's so run down. There's just that one African mask that calls a lot of attention to itself, because there's nothing else in there. And it's just that him, uh, what is the guy's name, Vernonave, I think it is, sitting upstairs, there over that uh, table with all the jewels, just looking at almost like he's a you know a, a witch or wizard over his treasure or something or a dragon, I suppose. And that uh, amazing ceiling coming down and just playing all those angles off of Foggle's face. Yeah, I love that, and I also love how Foggle will play with his own hat and push it up and push it down. Just again, calling more attention to the the actual titular doulos objects are so important to Melville's films. I mean, it's something that shows up here. You know, you pointed out the mask. He's obsessed with using mirrors, especially to reflect or sort of fracture the way someone's face appears. We see later in the film, he has all of these kind of art objects. And of course, gems and gold are sort of central to the plot. But the way he uses objects particularly in connection with what he's trying to say about crimes or criminality, or especially what he's trying to say about men and masculinity. It's like I could watch this movie 10 times in a week and still find something I missed. It's so meticulous. It like, it almost reminds me a little bit of how Polanski turns everything in the frame into kind of a science. Like you get the sense that he's actually taken out a ruler and measured how far away objects should be from each other. And there's a little bit of that here, I think. He would. He would do that. I remember hearing Schlorndorf say that if someone was 63 centimeters away from the camera, if you're going to do the reverse shot, they have to be 63 uh, centimeters away from the camera. (laughs) That's also why it gives you that sense that the world is so designed and artificial and it makes it really feel kind of like hostile and cold, which shows up in a lot of his films. Like even something like Les Enfants Terribles, which is a drama and is not a crime thriller. It still has that really kind of strange staged feeling where you can never be sure what world you're, you've been placed in. And you mentioned the mirror and I love that stock taking, you know, when a person looks at themselves in the mirror, it's like, where am I now in my life kind of thing. And we have that wonderful bookend of Reggiani looking at himself in the mirror at the beginning and then Belmondo looking at himself in the mirror at the end and to see that Reggiani is fractured. And then that Belmondo is full and that he's in the center of the sun. It is just so wonderful. There's Reggiani in this shithole house that that he's going to murder someone in. And here's Belmondo at the end, almost at the end of his life, looking at himself in the mirror and taking stock. We've talked about how perfect and well thought out the opening scene is. 
the conclusion is the ideal mirror of that. I mean, they they both just have such incredible symbolism and cinematography. And if you just showed someone the opening and the closing and cut out the entire film, there's just so much unexpected symmetry there. It's I I really I know that I'm just going to gush the entire episode, but I just love Melville so much. Gushing is definitely allowed on this episode. You know, another cycle reference is the overhead shot when he's climbing up the stairs is kind of like the Arbogast shot in uh, Psycho. I hadn't thought about the Arbogast thing. I mostly was thinking of the the swinging light after he kills the guy and the light gets hit and starts moving around. But even before that, one thing that always bothers me in movies is when they're in a location and then they go to another location and suddenly we've gone from day to night or night to day. And it's just like, how much time has passed? I love that you can actually see how the sun is going down outside and when the streetlight comes on and the streetlight comes on and hits Reggiani on the face and splits him right down the middle, light on the left side of his face, darkness on the right side of the face, which is perfect for this scene because he is being so duplicitous. The way that he is talking to this guy and he even goes over, he's like, hey, I need a gun for this job. Let me borrow your gun. Goes over, gets the gun and then manages to kill the guy. You mentioned the shadow over half of his face. I wonder if this, it'd be strange to see what kind of sun, <laughs> sun pan this guy got, you know? The lighting in that scene, it's a textbook. And there's a moment where after Maurice asks for the gun, and Gilbert says it's back there, uh, if you need extra light to see it, there's a lamp on the corner. Now, I don't know if you guys noticed this, but it seemed like that lamp, he turns on the lamp, and the illumination around the lamp is like a foot in circumference. Maurice walks through darkness on his way to the drawers to get the gun. Now, that lamp really did not help at all, except that it helps set up a shot that we will see later when Maurice stands up after shooting Gilbert, because that lamp makes possible a very nice little shadow on the wall behind him. He didn't want that lamp on, earlier in the scene because it would have messed up one of the earlier shots. So it's an example of like, I want to do this so bad. How do I do this? How do I get that? That It struck me as being really odd because if you go back and look at that, you'll see the same thing I saw if you didn't see it already. That lamp serves no purpose being turned on. It doesn't help at all. The drawer is 12, 15 feet away and the lamp's back there and it glows a little bit. It's kind of like maybe... uh a trick that he wanted you to get so he could appreciate the lighting in that scene. Cause it's, it's a really great work of like, uh, shadows, light and darkness. It's a room, it's an attic. So the, the, the roof is angled, rounded in certain places. There are moments where it looked like Dr. Caligari because of the shadows being thrown on the wall at a curved wall. And, and it's just wonderful. I love that scene. There are certain moments, and that's one of them, where he knows how clever it is and wants you to know, too. But when other directors, especially later directors, do things like that, I tend to find it annoying. But with him, I never do. It's it's sort of like, yes, that is a hell of a shot. Let's Let's linger on it for a moment so we can all really soak it in. Sam, you said something earlier about 
getting more on a second or a third or subsequent viewing. I certainly felt this way about Reggiani's performance in this particular scene. The movie's just started. He's walked down the uh, underneath the overpass. He's entered the house, and he's gone up the stairs, and there's definitely something wrong with him. If you see it the second time and you realize that it was his intention to go there and kill Gilbert, it makes the performance make a little more sense. Because the first time I saw this, I thought, I don't know exactly what's up. Because he seems to be, like, disconcerted about something. He's talking with Gilbert, but at the same time, he has something else on his mind. You get that kind of feeling from just a few just a few moments of his acting in that first sequence there. He's incredible, and I could not agree more. I think what we were talking about earlier about how Melville tries to trick you sometimes and appearances are deceiving, the sort of greatest example of that is Reggiani and his performance. Because the first time I watched this, I remember thinking, especially once Jean-Paul Belmondo shows up, I remember thinking that I felt like Reggiani was milk toast. Fogel is, he's pretty forgettable. Sometimes he seems weak. Then when you watch the film all the way through and you get to the ending, you realize like, okay, all of this was intentional. It wasn't just like, okay, we cast some bland actor because Reggiani is a great actor. And this film he was cast in during a kind of low point in his career and it really sort of helped revitalize him. I mean, he has the weirdest career and life story of full of all kinds of crazy ups and downs, but unlike Belmondo, who is so charismatic, Reggiani is much better suited for this kind of role because his performance is so stealthy. You have to watch it at least maybe one or two times. It's like you watch it the first time to get the plot. You watch it the second time so that you can just pay attention to the cinematography. You watch it a third time to appreciate Serge Reggiani <laughs> and, you know, so on and so forth. It really is his film. There are so many times where a Belmondo is just MIA for the longest time. Towards the end of the movie, it feels almost like they trade off and it becomes Belmondo's movie. But for the beginning of this, this is all Reggiani. Belmondo doesn't even come into the film until, what, 15 or so minutes in? Again, I guess it's kind of like that psycho thing where it's like, okay, now finally Anthony Perkins shows up. It's Anthony Perkins' movie. But yeah, it takes so long. And the way that Reggiani is talking about the other characters and just setting up this whole world in this opening scene, I mean, he, he mentions Remy, Cillian, uh, Natechio, Teresa, and that he's there just getting out of jail. He's been in jail for all this time. And then later on, we find out that he is actually getting revenge for, uh, was it his wife or his girlfriend who was mixed up with this guy? I mean, it was just, there's so many things. It's like we begin the movie while it's already in action. And I love that we have this rich backstory that it takes a lot to try to parse this stuff out. It's not just like, oh, here you go. Here's a good guy. Here's a bad guy. Go to it. We hear the names Remy, Cillian, Newly, which it turns out is either neighborhood or area where the house is that they're going to burglarize, but we don't know at that point. Teresa, Nathetio, and Armand, before we know these guys' names. But the thing is, the atmosphere is so rich, you're getting like both mystery and suspense at the same time, what's going to happen. And it's a very 
very intriguing and compelling uh, mood that the film starts out with a bang. I definitely remember thinking the first time I watched it, we hear all these names. Who the hell are these people? And I definitely remember thinking, okay, is he referring to himself? Is he referring to this guy in the room? Like, what is going on? He intentionally, he being Melville, starts off trying to disorient you in as many ways as possible. And it works. And we go from this very cool, calculated cat and mouse game that Reggiani is doing with this guy, getting the gun, shooting him, and then Natechio and I can't remember if it's Remy or Armand, and then Fabian show up. So it just adds this whole other thing to now all of a sudden it's a, I have to get the fuck out of this house and I need to get out without them seeing me, because suddenly we switch the pace from very laconic to bam, okay, now all of a sudden it's a, a chase and he has to get the fuck out of there. He has to grab the jewels, grab the money, grab all this stuff, get out. And I also love when these guys are coming out of the car that that light is still swinging up above in the window and that that's what really brings their attention. I just love those. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a very obvious detail, but it's just one of those things where it's just like, oh, that's so nice that that still is happening. And that is tying the outside world to the inside world. It probably wouldn't have been able to really swing that long. Probably not. But it's a great cinematic thing. It's <laughs> nice touch. Lovely. Maurice uh, takes the loot that he took with him from the uh, the apartment, and he finds a lamppost and decides to bury the loot there. And that's a, to me, it's not a literal uh, reference to Psycho, but it resonates in a couple ways with Psycho. It reminds me of Norman Bates cleaning up after the shower murder. In that, like when the car goes into the swamp and he's chewing his gum, we, the audience, start to identify with Norman Bates. When you hear this guy, someone running on the, on the street, I think that we kind of like start identifying with Maurice because, oh, my God, look out. Someone saw you. He has that same kind of effect for me anyhow. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think that's... One of the things like Psycho that can be a little bit confusing about this film the first time you watch it is I think so often with narrative films and even with like documentaries, we're so used to waiting for the filmmaker to tell us whose story it is and who we're supposed to follow and who we're supposed to identify with. And here he really keeps it from you for as long as he can. And it's like in different scenes, you're supposed to identify with different people, but we're never really sure who's trustworthy, which in a way also kind of reminds me of that gothic trope of the unreliable narrator. It's you never really know who's telling the truth. Something might seem to be one way the first time you watch a movie, but then once you or watch this movie, but then once you go back and rewatch it, like we've been talking about with Reggiani, you realize what his motivations are and how you incorrectly thought that he was doing certain things for a certain reason. And here you find out it's no, it's a different reason. I still wonder who was running down the street while watching the movie. It's a red herring. And and you're saying at that point, is this that Cillian or Remy they were talking about or Nathetio? Who, who saw this guy? Is it's going to be a major plot point and it just dissipates, but for the time being, it helps to create a lot of suspense. Even when he's 
getting out of the house and Fabian is still in the car, I kept thinking, oh, Fabian probably saw him and she's going to be the key and she's going to say, oh, he was the one that was in the house. He's the one that murdered that guy. But no, that never comes up. So yeah, it is, it's very masterfully done the way that he just keeps throwing us these curveballs. Can we talk about Fabian for a second? The poor lady who's barely in this movie. I feel so bad for her and for Teresa. <laughs> We're going to have to, at some point, discuss Melville's treatment of women in general. Let's do it right now. Uh, so Fabian is played by an actress named Fabian Dully, who I, I love, who was not in nearly enough movies. She's a Belgian actress who is in Kill Baby Kill, the Baba film, which is where I knew her from. And so the first time I saw this, it just bugged me. Like, where do I know this woman? And she's also in uh, The Libertine with Jean-Louis Trintignant. She makes such a contrast to Therese, who's played by Monique Kennessy. A lot of people at this point have come out and said, you know, one of the big problems with Melville is that he's really misogynistic. And I usually always have to say, well, no, he's not, (laughs) because that's just what I do. But he wasn't great at casting women, especially in films where he's not trying to cast starlets. He has some really great performances from great actresses like Juliette Greco and When You Read This Letter, Simone Signore in Army of Shadows. Nicole Stefan, who we worked with a couple times, is amazing, but he seems to really struggle when it comes to casting actresses in these sort of side roles. Some of my favorite kind of on-set stories about La Dulos is that Belmondo apparently hated these women and thought that they were really unprofessional. <laughs> Moni Kennessy was pretty inexperienced, but He just has such a strange way of putting women in his films, but they really are like the reason I guess it doesn't bother me is because I feel like these films are these very weird masculine worlds where sex doesn't really enter into it very often. Women are pretty much nowhere to be found, but it's, I guess also why it doesn't bother me is It's not like he's saying this is the way the world should be. It should be only men all the time. This is great. He sort of makes these films about how damaged and failing this particular type of masculinity is. I do think that, for example, in Bob Le Flambeau, the the last great uh, heist that uh, Bob and his associates were going to pull off, it all comes undone because of women. And in this film... Teresa is a rat. Fabian turns on Nutechio just because she thinks it'll get her in good with uh, the Belmondo character. And Anita, Jean's girlfriend, rats out him. So rat, rat, rat. True, but I feel like you can understand why they do that in the sense that they all seem to be pretty miserable and they're basically try. It seems to me at least like they're trying to find the, the least painful option to sort of survive in this world. The whole relationship between Fabian and Nutechio is that typical kind of film noir plot where you have this desired female character who 
agrees to be in a relationship with a gangster, somebody who owns a nightclub, someone who has kind of money and power, but she really loves the sort of deadbeat criminal. Although in this movie, like, how do you choose between the two of them, between Cillian and Nutechio? Or between Belmondo and, and Michelle Piccoli. Yes. <laughs> well, that, that's, that's really what I mean. Michelle Piccoli, I think, could sell any role. And here, it almost would make more sense to have a less charismatic actor in the part. He just is incredible and almost steals the film. Isn't there a law in the 60s in France that he had to be in every fifth film or something? There, I mean, it seems that way. <laughs> <laughs> He's incredible, though. Am I reading it right, too, that there was a relationship between Belmondo and Fabian before she hooked up with uh, Natechio? It's sort of like a Gilda-type plot where you have this sort of female performer character who has this relationship with this thug, but she leaves him and winds up with the more powerful guy, but then the thug comes back into her life and she sort of has like a, well, maybe this guy is better after all moment. And that's just the kind of charismatic guy uh, Cillian is, is that he also had a brief... Well, not an intimate relationship, but he saw Teresa with with the police uh, policeman that uh, Cillian was uh, giving information to, informing to. He saw them together, which is another thing that it helps to see the film a second time because yes. when, when we see the look that Teresa exchanges with, with Belmondo and vice versa, when... Uh, Teresa first comes into uh, Maurice's apartment. It's like, whoa, these guys must know each other. And then it turns out that they don't. But Belmondo was giving her the look, and she was responding not necessarily in reference to that previous meeting that they had, but maybe she was responding just carnally or something. Yeah, that scene is really confusing at first. I love that the first thing that she gets told in this movie is, make me a sandwich. It's the punchline, but they just bring it right out, you know, before it was a punchline. The first time or one of the first times I watched this, I wondered, like, is is he making fun of this type of character? Because that's sort of how it seems. Like, Therese is so kind of miserable and downtrodden in this movie. I shouldn't be laughing at that. It's It's just more, like, to me, it seems like he's taking a pretty obvious character type. And making a really dramatic, over-the-top version of it. And she just has an awful time in this film. Do I remember right? Was she Melville's secretary? I think she was, because she didn't really have much acting experience. But she also was in a couple of his movies at this time, including Two Men in Manhattan and Leon Moran, just in like smaller roles. It seems like the sort of thing where he wrote the script, thought to himself okay, I need an actress to cast in this part, but didn't want to audition actresses, looked across the room and was like, she'll do. <laughs> she'll get beat up by uh, Belmondo and get whiskey poured all over her head. No big deal. Yeah, that scene is so intense. It's unexpected as well, since we have Belmondo leaving, 
going down and making that phone call and that we see the other person on the end of that phone call, which is an inspector, uh, Salen Yari, and then he goes back to the apartment. You don't expect him to go back to that apartment at all. And then when that violence comes, it just is even more surprising. She lets him in and maybe she's thinking they're going to follow up on that little exchange they had, but through looking at each other. That's what I thought, too. The first time I saw this, I thought, oh, well, I guess now they're going to have an affair. Just kidding. <laughs> but Belmondo's being trying to be really making an effort to be kind of charming at first, which is kind of selling that idea. And then he whacks her one. Whacks her a lot of ones. Yeah, more than just one. And it's it's also so jarring because it's Belmondo. Like his sort of roguish kind of, especially during this period of his career, boyish charm, I think goes a long way in a lot of these crime films when he's being played somewhat against type where you don't imagine him as a character who would do that sort of thing. And just like the way he shuts off the jazz music, it's, it's, I think still is so powerful. It's like right out of the naked kiss. It reminded me of all the slapping that goes on in that particular film. And that's great editing, too. I love the cuts on the slaps when he's given those to her. I mean, it's just really effective. It hides the slap itself, but it really makes it hurt even more. Yeah, you feel like you've seen it. And I love her when she's got the whiskey that's been poured over her head and that it's just the one eye that you can see looking out from under her hair. And just, I feel so bad for her and the way that he will... He puts the gag in, takes the gag out, asks for the information, puts the gag back in, and the way that she's tied up with the belt to the radiator, it's just, oh, it is really brutal. It goes a long way also in making you feel more disoriented, because you don't find out until the end of the film why he beats her, really. But at the time, though, he does get the information, and right then and there, you know you know for a fact that he is going to put the finger on Maurice on this job. It's obvious. It's obvious that that's what's going on. So super obvious in that we've already seen him call the police inspector. We know that he's got a relationship with this guy. So, of course. And when the police inspector shows up at the robbery, yeah, of course. This makes total sense. You have just, you know, one plus one equals two. Of course, this is following this very logical path. We know everything that's that's happening now. And we completely are there with Maurice knowing exactly what's on his mind when it comes to what has happened. The only real mystery for him is who's the one that rescued him and takes him to a safe house to get the bullet removed when he shoots the inspector and the inspector shoots him. That's his, the only thing that is on his mind is, okay, well, who saved me? It really doesn't matter. I'm going to go kill this silly end because he's a horrible person and he put the finger on me. Well, that's his reputation. Uh, he knows, he only knew Cillian as being a friend. But Gilbert uh, said he's a horrible person. That's what everybody in Paris says. So he's weighing those things, and he realizes at that point that it has to be Cillian. The way that Melville gives you all of those pieces of information, it's not like the usual suspects or something where it's entertaining, but if you watch it more than once or twice, because it relies on this central twist, it's like once that sort of punch has been delivered, it just doesn't have the same impact. But here, that sense of 
tension between the two characters and the suspense of what's going to happen to them, I don't think it lessens the more times you watch the film. Oh, no. Not at all. And you just hit upon my central problem with The Usual Suspects. Once I saw it and once the twist happened, I was like, okay, I never need to watch this movie again. Because you can just figure it all out. Oh, okay, well, this was all just made up by this guy wholesale. It doesn't necessarily play into anything. So, okay, I'm good. But then you watch a movie like this where it's like, oh, now I got more. Now I get more. Now I get more. And, oh, isn't that interesting how he deals us this information when it's actually that? And even watching this thing again recently, I'm like, okay, well, this is all good, but who killed Teresa? Is this going to be like the, the chauffeur from the big sleep? Who killed the chauffeur? Does it really matter? Who killed Teresa? You know, and I just kept thinking of that throughout so much of this movie when they have the headline about how her body was found in a car at the bottom of this quarry. And I'm like, okay, well, that's good and all, but it doesn't seem to be explainable who would have killed her. So, and then when they give it to us towards the end, it's like, oh, okay. And it makes even more sense the next time I watch it. I do want to talk a little bit about that robbery. I love the robbery scene and we've had so many great robbery scenes, even at this point in cinema. I mean, this is coming years after uh, Rafifi. This is a much more low-key robbery, but I love the things that go right with it. I love the things that go wrong with it. I especially love how Maurice is using his fingers as a gun in the guy's back, and this whole uh, idea of him marching this guy in, and the dog, and you think that the dog is going to screw something up, and it's just it's a very tense scene for not even being a successful robbery. If you look at movies that follow Rafifi, how much more seriously or in different ways they treat this idea of a robbery or a heist sequence. And I think in a lot of the earlier films, it's just there's a sense of suspense around, are the characters going to get this right? Melville was more interested in the suspense and the kind of meticulous nature of the scene itself than he was in the outcome because he, he shows a similar type of scene in almost every movie in the second half of his career after La Dulos, whether it's a heist or whether it's a scene in army of shadows where somebody is trying to steal information or escape or something along those lines. It's a very similar extended scene where the action almost stops, but, it's so anxiety inducing. You just start sweating watching it. <laughs> There's a sense that this isn't going to come off for whatever reason. I, I, I felt like this isn't going to come off. Something bad's going to happen. The things that interested me once again is the stylistic touches, things that you could see metaphorically, like the hopping over the fence. I keep thinking of prison bars when I see gates and fences like that, a wrought iron and stuff. But the scene itself. It's like it, it kind of builds, and then uh, what I really remember the most about that is when uh, they run out of the room where the uh, caretaker is has been placed on the bed, and somebody bumps into the table, and this boss almost falls off the table and doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a very particular noise, too. I really it like is. the foley on that. That is a perfect example of the atmosphere of this film is it's so brilliant because it's like, who gives a shit if the vase falls over, but you, he makes you care 
about things because they're these sort of instinctive mundane things that we would care about. Like, oh no, don't let the vase fall. (laughs) But I think that that's what's so great about a lot of his films is these small moments with action movies and crime thrillers and things like that. They focus so much on the big moments and these big, huge sequences, but a movie has so much more weight if it's something like this, where he makes you care about every single frame. And it's not like that, oh, hey, it was just a chance thing that it just happened. We happened to have this one take and it did that. It placed it right where it was because, you know, you don't put a table with a vase in in that place. Right. I don't I wouldn't think so. You'd move it to the side or one of the against the wall on either side of the entrance there. But it was right there. Someone's going to bump into that table and that vase is going to fall one of these days. I think it's very telling that you're talking about these powerhouse moments of the film. And one of the best moments of this movie for me is not a robbery. It's not an action scene. It's this eight minute and some second take of an interrogation, El Belmondo, by these cops, because now Salignari is showed up, and that was Belmondo's friend who was an inspector, but we don't necessarily know about that friendship fully. And they pick him up, and they take him back to the police uh, station, and it goes on for, like I said, I, I think Melville used to say nine minutes and 26 seconds, but if you time it, it's a little bit less than that. I don't know, uh, conversion from French or something. Um, <laughs> but it is just so great to look at and the way that he sets up these frames. I and mean, we've talked about Ophels before, and this is right up there with something that Ophels would have done. And I love it's the, the Belmondo for most of it. He is against this wall and you've got the one main inspector and then his two guys and the way that they will move throughout this room, especially the way that the cameras follow the following the inspector from left and right. And Belmondo is always there in the center. And it is like, he is this unflappable person that uh, he's like the, 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 the rock in the wind that will never move. And here's everything moving around him. And we're going into close up. We've got these group shots. We go over here, we go over here and just, it is just all beautifully framed and so well uh, choreographed. It's also wonderful too, that you have that. And then a few scenes later, you have almost the same kind of thing with uh, Maurice, but guess what? That's three minutes and there's three cuts in it. And with that, each time one character moves, another character comes in from the left and from the right. It's like he is trapped in there as opposed to Belmondo, who is just unflappable. The first time I saw the film and this scene popped up, I I really wasn't even aware that there, there weren't any cuts in it. And for me, it kind of took the movie from one place and which was which I was loving all this black and white, these dark shadows and these this, you know, all the action that had been happening up to that point. And for me, the first time I saw this scene here, it just stopped the movie dead in its tracks for me. But I, the second time I saw it, after realizing that this was a famous eight minute shot, then I really admired it from a technical point of view. But frankly, these cops were a lot less interesting. And we hadn't seen too many cops up to that point. 
than all these shady characters. So I still had that kind of like, eh, I wish they'd go back to like uh, firing guns and running around and, you know, <laughs> robbing stuff. I really do see the technical brilliance upon the second time through. And it made me think of uh, the interrogation in Sanchez's apartment in Touch of Evil again. I had that to hang on to it because that's an extended one take uh, five, six minutes long or something like that. There's two of them in that film. All in all, yeah, it is really something. And the blocking that had to have been done in that is amazing. It's like a ballet almost. But I also am super biased because I would watch a shot, an extended nine and a half minute shot of Jean-Paul Belmondo watching paint dry. So I could, you know, easily deal with these sort of scenes where he it just it seems like the action stops the way that he is always at the center was another of those things where the first time i saw the film i i felt confused like okay are we he's obviously this sort of like like you said mike this unflappable force and at that moment he seems to be the kind of stable sort of weighted center of the film. And it just confused me so much. Like, am I supposed to be identifying with, with Cillian's character? Like what's going on here? And like I said, I love that we have this contrast between his interrogation and then Maurice's interrogation and that Maurice is sitting and that the cops are all above him. And you even get this one low angle shot. You talk, uh, Ken, about Orson Welles and that you can actually see the ceiling in this area. It is so nice. And the walls look like they're, I don't know, 15 feet high. So it's just this kind of oppressive weight on him as he is being questioned by the cops. And, you know, it's this kind of rhyming thing that we have through here. So we've got Belmondo being questioned. Now we have Reggiani being questioned. Reggiani, when he's at the bar, he's looking at this newspaper. A lot of information is being given to us through newspaper headlines. And he's reading about Teresa's death there. And I love when the cops come and pull him out that he has them pay the barkeep. And there's another moment right towards the end with this other guy, Jean, who he's drinking at the bar, just about to have his drink, I think. And the cops come in and pick him up and he has to give money to the bartender. And I love that uh, Maurice is like, it's not her fault that I'm getting picked up. So why stiff the bar? It's the little moments, like I said earlier, that anyone else who's trying to tell this sort of godfather type story, I don't think would fixate on those little details. But yet Melville does. Yeah, Mike, you mentioned a, a shot looking down on Maurice, and that, that happened earlier in the film as well when uh, we see Maurice lying on his bed once he uh, can't remember the context, but we see an overhead shot at that moment. I always associate that with you know a God's eye view of someone who's in a pathetic situation. I'm trying to remember, too, if it was in that second interrogation or later that they take off his hat. And it's such a big deal. I mean, hats are such a it's the freaking title of the movie. Hats are such a big deal that when they are taken off of heads or have to be removed, that gets so much attention pulled to it. So like later on, Belmondo goes to a bar and he takes off his hat and gives it to the hat check lady. And we follow the hat as it goes over <laughs> to the shelf and get that number 13, that nice unlucky 13 uh, hat check. Something is really significant. If he moves his camera, there are long takes the opening credit sequence, long take. Uh, this is the long takes in the uh, police department, but uh 
you know, he doesn't really move his camera. Most of the action is like conveyed through uh, cutting. Along that line, something I think we should talk about for a little bit that we haven't really yet is Melville is really the closest thing you could come at the time to something like an independent filmmaker because he really broke with the studio system. I mean, I tried to find a way in, but never really could get in the same way that a lot of the other sort of big name French filmmakers from the 50s were. He just said, fuck it, I'm doing it myself. (laughs) And managed to get things financed or would come up with the money on his own and opened his own production company. So he had this incredible amount of control that I think is something we've been talking about in different ways while we've discussed Le Doulos. But it's not even just that he had control in terms of what was going in what shot, but he had the freedom to kind of do things that younger directors would never really have been allowed to do. And so I think that's why you get a lot of this very kind of unusual sense of style that I am just obsessed with. He's the closest that we really have to an independent filmmaker and something like French cinema at the time and decided to pull up his big boy pants and open his own studio, which was unheard of. That along with the fact that he did a lot of location shooting and uh, used some amateurs, and he wrote scripts if he had an original story and he would adapt scripts. This is what made him, in the eyes of the new wave critics, a true auteur at that time. And uh, so he's an inspiration to a lot of people because of these things. He was like the daddy of the French new wave, and they all looked at him as such. I love that he shoots uh, Silence of the Sea, Le Silence de la Mer, without the author's permission, without permission from the French, I don't know, film council or whoever you have to get permission from. And that he's just like, fuck it. That's one of my favorite stories because he just is such an upstart and basically goes to the guy who wrote the book and says, look, I was in the resistance too. I made this film about your book you and this panel of, I think, 12 other kind of resistance elders can watch my film. If you hate it, I will throw it in the trash, set it on fire. You'll never hear of it again. If you like it, maybe you could give me your blessing and I could release it. And it's like, who does that? And I love that he's so into his studio when he finally gets the studio going that he lives above the studio, that he basically just comes downstairs and starts shooting film in the morning. You know, that's it. (laughs) Or in the mid-afternoon. I think he was a late sleeper. Yeah, he has all of these crazy quotes just from interviews and things like that where he talks about how kind of solitude is the ideal state. And he he was an insomniac and would be up all night. But, like, he never stopped working. All he did was work. So getting back into Ledu, though, I did want to talk a little bit about the uncovering of the treasure. Uh, where, I mean, it's, it's like kids, you know, burying buried treasure and having this, a treasure map. Like, there's a literal treasure map in this movie. <laughs> We know that it's Belmondo, but he keeps him in shadow so often that there are times where it's like, is that really Belmondo or not? And 
I don't think it's any coincidence that, you know, Belmondo's got a very distinct profile. Reggiani also has a distinct profile, but they're very similar in a lot of ways. Like you would never mistake these guys in a lineup, but when their hats are pulled down low and they're have this high overhead light coming down and throwing shadows on them, there were moments where I'm like, am I actually seeing what I'm seeing? It's a nice way to to kind of fake us out and then also continue, like you were saying before, Ken, just throwing more and more onto the guilty pile as far as Cillian, the Belmondo character, just being just he's such an awful person. How dare he do all of these things? Now he's robbing from his friend, from Maurice. Now he's continued to just drive that knife right in his back after he gave him up to the police earlier and told him exactly where he was going to be placing that robbery. And knowing that uh, Maurice gave the envelope with the map in it to Anita, who gave it, who, who was told, don't give it to anybody but Jean. So you're thinking, it looks like Belmondo, but Jean's supposed to have it. You know, so I wasn't quite 100% sure it would have required information, once again, that was withheld from us to confirm that it was Belmondo. Yeah, and we know for sure that it's not supposed to be. Reggiani, because last time we see him, he's being marched upstairs at the police station where it looks like he's going up to the gallows. The envelope was given to Anita when Maurice was uh, recuperating at, at Jean's place. And he was told, he told Anita, don't give this to anyone but Jean. And only when I tell you to. That's all I knew when I saw this character dig up the stuff. I said, it looks like Belmondo, but it's not supposed to be. Well, and I think that's one of the things that's so amazing about this is he manages to stretch this stuff out for so long in the film where even up until the end, even though you're pretty sure you think you know what's going on, in every scene you're like, what is happening? Why are these people doing this? Why can no one follow instructions? (laughs) If it wasn't so much fun, you know, in terms of the mystery and the suspense and the mood and the atmosphere... It would be infuriating. (laughs) It it would. It it is kind of infuriating. If Jack Webb made this movie? Oh, my God. (laughs) It's infuriating, but in a pleasurable way. I'm I'm not sure how else to say that. (laughs) I'm sure the Germans have a word for that. (laughs) Sure they do. (laughs) After this whole thing with the treasure, and now we've got Maurice in jail. We see him, and he meets uh, his new uh, cellmate, Kern, who looks like he's as tall as the ceiling is in this room. I mean, this guy's huge. Ledulos suddenly takes this left turn and becomes this other movie for a while where it's suddenly, you know, you mentioned Gilda before. I was thinking the big heat where it's like suddenly you're dealing with, um, you know, this, this whole different branch of the underground. And now we're back in the Techo territory where it is a different level, different layer of gangsters. It's the ones that own the club where there's probably illicit gambling going on and just all of these things. And now all of a sudden Belmondo's in here. We've got this X flame coming up with Fabian, who we saw at the very beginning, but now she's back in this movie. And I'm so glad that they set that stuff up earlier in the film, because otherwise this would be so out of place. And even as it is, it's still kind of out of place, but it works perfectly within the whole larger picture of Le Doulos. But the first time you see it, it's just like, whoa, what's going on? Why am I suddenly now in the Cotton Club and dealing with Michel Piccoli and this whole thing? And 
having these this new set of machinations as far as Belmondo wanting to get back with Fabian and having her help him out with this whole elaborate scheme and he pulls off it's not necessarily a heist but it's it's a double murder that he pulls off rather than uh, uh stealing anything but he uses the jewels from earlier in order to lure these guys in and in order for them to not necessarily murder each other which would kind of set up a little bit later in the thing but just for them to um be killed by him but then make it look like it's them killing each other it is diabolical. It's odd what, what I remember from this movie are little things that really don't have much to do with the plot, like the vase, like the lamp. In the club, there's this woman dancing on stage, and at one point she steps onto the bar, which is no wider than, like, I don't know, two feet across, and it's like she comes very close to kicking people's glasses off the bar, and I'm wondering if I would really like to sit there, you know. It just seemed a little little odd. It's not the real world in any discernible way. But I remember feeling kind of frustrated the first time I saw this because to to your point a minute ago, I didn't understand why we suddenly found our way back into this club and like what did that have to do with Cillian and Maurice? But Really, anything that gets Michelle Piccoli more screen time, I am totally, (laughs) totally on board for. And Natechio is one of those weird characters. And again, it's almost a kind of psycho-like thing that we were talking about earlier, where within this film, he has this way of suddenly making you care about characters that maybe don't get a lot of screen time or maybe haven't been there since the beginning of the film. And I think Nutechio is a perfect example of that because he becomes such a powerful character in kind of the last act here. I I think mostly because Michelle Piccoli is the greatest, but one of my favorite Melville-isms about him is he said... (laughs) I wanted to bring to life the kind of bastard who doesn't sponge his face in sweat when he knows he's about to die. <laughs> <laughs> Which is totally Nutechio. Okay, Sam. Piccoli or Piccoli or Belmondo? What, what am I, Solomon? Why do I have to choose between the two of them? <laughs> <laughs> you gushed over each. I was just wondering if there was a preference there. I don't know. I love them both so much. I might have to give the slight edge to Piccoli, although I feel like I'm about to be struck by some sort of lightning bolt from the French New Wave right now. (laughs) I love the little touch that she's not smoking, and I don't know how you pronounce this, uh, Goldoise, the uh, French cigarette. Goldoise, yeah. That she's smoking cools. That it's that nice little American touch again. That of course you're not necessarily in France. You're not necessarily in America. You're in this nether world where you can get cools to smoke. As cool and as clean as a breath of fresh air. That snow fresh filter cool. The first time I was in Paris, I ran out of. Uh, I'm a smoker, and the first time I ran out of smokes in Paris, I decided to try some Godvaz, and they're just awful. It's like being punched in the lungs. I like them if I can have a drag of someone else's, but if you're used to smoking American cigarettes, they're, <laughs> they're a lot. 
unlike cools, which are light and refreshing. You won't get cancer as quickly as you will from Galois. <laughs> I want to say, too, that this is also around the same time where Belmondo is questioning her and trying to get her to testify. Is that right? As far as like uh, this whole thing about a train passing while they're inside to hit the shot. And she's like, well, no, I didn't hear a train. And then he keeps pestering her. And then she's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I definitely yeah, I, there was a train. It must have covered the shot. And it's just this whole weird little moment where like just how easy it is to make her change her story, I guess, maybe to make us trust her less. Well, you have to remember that they just got done making love. They had had a previous relationship. So I think that she's thinking, I keep going into the actor's name, Belmondo. He just promised me that he'd take me away with him and stuff. So I, I, that's all that matters to her. And apparently she's not happy with Nuthetio. And she probably just wants to please uh, Belmondo. And so she's allows herself to be coerced into, uh, into giving up, uh, Nathaniel to the police. I mean, she has all this oxytocin flooding her brain. It's prime manipulation time. And Cillian is so calculating. Like, he's such a likable character, I think, because of Belmondo, even though he does all these terrible things. But he is pretty damn manipulative. Fabian prefers Belmondo. Maybe she wants both. I think that really would be the perfect world. (laughs) (laughs) But that's a very different sort of movie. (laughs) That would take a few more years to come out. Well, I guess actually Jules and Jim was already had happened, hadn't it? Yes, but Melville would never make a movie about a three-way relationship. Yeah, so we have this whole thing of the death of these two gangsters, which is just masterfully done again. This whole thing, I love how Belmondo is trying to get him to touch all the jewels so that he'll get his fingerprints all over them. Meanwhile, Belmondo is wearing those white gloves. I've, I read somewhere that people call them editor gloves. So I was like, oh, that's nice. You know, just crafting that scene. He's the director at this point. He's directing the way that this needs to go down. And then he's even doing this kind of wounded bird act at one point to the other gangster where it's just like, oh yeah, he shot me in the leg and he's trying to limp around and then he pulls out his gun and shoots that guy. I just... Stretches plausibility for me a little bit only because it's so elaborate. The machinations that has to be gone through in order to set up this situation to create what looks like a double homicide and uh, a, you know a burglary or something along those lines. It, it just... It does make sense, but wow, what are, it's just very elaborate because it involves calling Fabian and drawing him Piccoli there and then getting Armand. And, you know, I mean, it works. It makes sense. But I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God, <laughs> in order to get this in order to get this thing to work for him. And he, I, but what's amazing is he's just so cool about the whole thing as if. Uh, It's no problem. This is going to happen. He gets a plan. He executes it perfectly. Yeah. And that honestly is my only slight issue with the plot is perhaps because of my extreme love for Michelle Piccoli. I have a hard time believing that Nutechio would be duped into something like this, but so it goes. So it is very quickly after this that we have the regroup of Jean and Fogel and Cillian all together. 
and then it becomes this series of flashbacks. So we explain everything that had gone on before. We finally get the death of Therese. We get what had happened with Salignari. We get all of these things finally coming to light. And I love, though, that there's the extra flashbacks that are going to happen right towards the end of the movie. We think that we're all done with flashbacks at this point. Again, it is Melville being this master where it's like, okay, you wondered about these things. Here's what's going on. And guess what? It was actually Teresa who was behind all of this stuff. She is the actual finger man as, as this uh, would get an American title. She's the one who gave this information. She's the one who did this, that, and the other thing. Now she's dead, and here's how she died, and here's, um, oh, look at Jean got a rip in his coat. All of these things that are going to play into scenes afterwards and now recontextualize all of the scenes before, but we still have left out these two flashbacks that come up when we have the climax of the movie that just again, throw everything into a different light. I love the way that he puts this together. It's one of those kind of twists that doesn't feel like a cheap screenwriting cop-out. There are so many unanswered questions for how we're supposed to feel about Cillian during the course of the film that I think once you get that explanation, it winds up being kind of a relief in a weird way. I was thinking that exact word, that's what you're experiencing, hearing this being pieced together in such a way so that, ah, okay, I get it. Yes, <laughs> Thank <that>. God. <laughs> it is a relief. But then he ratchets it back up again. Yep. We've got this rainstorm that starts. We've heard about this house that Belmondo's character has through the entire film, and we've never seen it. And so now we're about to see this house, and it becomes this race to the house. Because he leaves, Fogel leaves, Maurice leaves, and he is desperate to catch him. And again, we have this very psycho-esque scene of Marion Crane driving out of the city and hearing the voices of the people that were finding out about the robbery. Instead, with this, I love that we get this POV shot from behind the wheel, this process shot of the cars and him weaving in and out of the cars. And then that wonderful flashback comes up and we learn that he has hired Kern, his cellmate, to murder Cillian for two million francs. And now it is this race to try to save this guy who he thought for sure had sold him out. And he has to get up to this house before Cillian does, or he has to actually catch Cillian because he's on the road and he wants to catch him and stop him from going to the house. Oh, it is just, it's played so beautifully. I love this whole thing of him passing by this gas station and then the shot of Belmondo in the car at the gas station. And you just know that Maurice is on his way to his doom. And that, again, that wonderful moment where he's rushing up to the house and we get him completely in silhouette. And here we have the thing that I talked about, I don't know, an hour and a half ago, the mistaking of one character for the other. And that's how he dies. It is just 
gorgeous and so tense. I remember being in the theater when I did see this theatrically, just wanting to yell out at the screen because it's like, no, no, don't, don't go in there. <laughs> Your doom is in this house. In a way, it, it recalls, of course, the very first time that we see Belmondo, the faceless silhouette character there. And I think maybe, I, I think it's that shot there at the beginning of the film was to set up this one here because, because it's, the whole idea is that uh, it's important for Maurice to get killed only if he can't be identified as Maurice because Kern and Maurice know each other. If he knew it was Maurice, you know, he wouldn't shoot him. But in order to pull that off, he's going to have to be, you know, uh, just a specter and not be uh, recognizable. Yeah, and that, honestly, I think is one of the most brilliant things about the film is the way that he, yes, I definitely think he sets it up so that it can be used to its greatest effect here. But the way that he weaves throughout the film, all of these, even sometimes very small sequences where we confuse characters for other characters because of hats and shadows, it feels so obvious and effortless. Like he's not... This isn't a film serial or a comic book or something where people are wearing masks or makeup or anything crazy. It just, it's such a little subtle thing that has such a huge payoff. And the end scene of the film, I think, brings us also right back into that kind of horror movie territory where it's exactly like you just said. It, it's, it's like that feeling of watching a horror movie and, and screaming or wanting to scream to the character, like, don't leave, go out the front door, don't go down there. <laughs> Which I don't think happens with crime films very often. Belmondo comes in, and we don't know if Kern is still there or not. And bon- Belmondo comes in, he looks around the room, doesn't see anything, but then he sees Maurice on the floor and he goes over to him. And I love how Maurice with his dying breath, tells him to look behind the screen. And then we have Bomano standing up and very quickly shooting this kind of Chinese screen that's there, Japanese, I'm not sure, shoots the screen, and then the body coming out from behind it. And you're talking about horror movie. I mean, this is almost like, you know, shooting Michael Myers or Jason or something, and that he can't be stopped, even though he's gotten all of these shots in him. And Belmondo thinks he's out of the woods. He turns around, and the guy gets one final shot off and shoots him right in the back your heart just goes out to him because here he was going to have this beautiful house that he's in. He's got the girl. Now everything is set up for beautiful, tranquil life of the future. And it's all just being pulled away from him. I don't want to be accused of being too picky here, but one other thing that's struck me and stuck me as being a little odd. is the fact that this is a pouring down rainstorm. And yet, there's a long, long driveway up to the house. Yet both Maurice and Cillian choose to walk all the way from the street to the uh, house. Now, I just thought that was something else that was a little odd. And, and once again, I just thought it was a, a Melville's choice because he liked the mood and the atmosphere of the rain coming down on these guys. And stopping by the horse and, you know, the reference to Asphalt Jungle there on the way to the house. So I don't know if you guys felt that way or not. I think you need to take your negativity elsewhere. I know for sure about Mondo is driving this big American looking car. And I don't know if it would have fit inside of the gates to get up there. (laughs) (laughs) 
But there are tire tracks in the mud. There are tire tracks, yes. You would think, hey, it's raining. I think I'll drive up to the house. <laughs> but but the atmosphere. I know. That's what I'm saying. It's, it's like the lamp thing. The, the lamp doesn't matter, but it's there for a purpose to be used in a few seconds. And this is like the, the long walk to his fate, you know, in the rain. Of course, that's, you know, that's mythic. I can't remember who it's from maybe maybe glenn kenny or it's from another film critic who basically talks about the worlds that melville creates as being almost like science fiction where you know you're watching a crime film and most crime films lean pretty heavily into realism whereas melville doesn't it's like the elements that we associate with normal day-to-day life are there a deception or a manipulation and they're all it's like the more you watch his films especially his later ones there are so many things that don't make logical sense such as the placement of objects or the decisions that characters make but I think that's why I love them so much because it's it's exactly like you just said. It gives them this sort of mythic kind of otherworldly quality that, that like this isn't the regular world. I'm going through all of Melville's titles in my head and I'm trying to think of any that end with a happy ending. Nope, don't don't try it. I apologize to anyone who is listening to this episode who ha- if you've never seen a Melville film. I'm going to ruin them all for you right now by saying he is 100% dedicated to killing off his characters or at least making sure people are miserable and alone by the end of the film, if they survive. (laughs) I mean, I think it's his next film, which is Magnet of Doom, the English title. And that's the perfect, yeah, that's the perfect title for all of his films, because no matter what, they are always being pulled to their doom. One of my favorite definitions of film noir uh, is that at the beginning of the movie or the book or whatever, you are fucked. And by the end of it, you're even more fucked. And that's how it is with this, that this him getting up, calling Fabian, I won't be coming home, the hat falling off and ending on that beautiful shot of the hat and the music coming in and just giving this kind of like three chords hitting that, like this death toll that just happened, these three dead bodies in this room. Oh, it is just, yeah, you walk out of the theater just devastated, but thrilled at the same time. As much as I've referenced influences on Melville, I I feel that the uh, Coen brothers had to have seen this particular film because it's like Miller's Crossing. A lot of the stuff reminds me of stuff that would show up in Miller's Crossing. There's a couple times where just like a character will adjust his hat, and that reminds me of something of a character doing something like that in that particular film. And the end with the hat falling to the ground and rolling a little bit, little bit is you know much like something that's in Miller's Crossing. When they're out burying the treasure, I keep thinking of Steve Buscemi with that. Yeah, ice scraper. Yeah. The way that'll put the ice scraper in there yeah, and that'll Fargo, get covered yeah. by the snow. Yeah. Certainly there are a couple of different things we could list, but I think his films and Le Doulos in particular is such a foundational film that inspired the crime movies that came after it. I mean, 
Rafifi, definitely there, there wouldn't, this wouldn't exist without Rafifi in some form, but it's just, I think it sort of really kind of set the tone for what a lot of crime films later in the sixties and in the seventies would do. And I mean, granted, I don't think most of them do it as brilliantly as Melville does, but the, the other thing I just wanted to say, because this is my sort of like thing that I always have to bring it back to, but I think it's important to remember when you watch these films and you think about how miserable and kind of nihilistic the endings are and everyone dies, you can't for a minute forget that Melville was somebody who fought in World War II and was a survivor of war atrocities in a sense. And I think that tone that really kind of bleak tone throughout his films is something that you can't separate from that. I remember hearing a commentary on this in which there was some controversy from some corners about the very notion, the very idea of creating a world of French gangsters because with some people struck a bad chord because they associated French gangsters during the war with being people who informed to the Nazis against the resistance. But, you know, he got to cut Melville a pass because he was a member of the resistance. So I'm sure that that was not his intention to glorify or glamorize these guys. It's much more complicated than that. I don't think you can, especially in terms of talking about France, I don't think you can divide it into this, these two distinct groups of resistance members and informants, because the majority of the French population, they might not have been outright informants, but most of them at minimum tolerated the Nazis and accepted this life of collaboration. And so I think that's something else that you see in a lot of his films that no one can be trusted. And the sort of gangsters that you're referring to usually were people involved in black market sales during World War II, of which there were many. Some of them were informants, like Gestapo informants. Some of them were just people trying to survive who were opportunistic and maybe didn't help the Nazis, but didn't really go out of their way to help anyone but themselves. That's where a lot of these sorts of characters in his films come from. It's just this sense that everybody always has some agenda. People have secrets. You can't trust anyone. This whole idea in the plot of La Doulos that there's this reveal where we find out this character that we thought was kind of an innocent victim really set the whole thing in motion. I think that also relates back to a lot of his wartime experiences with betrayal. Well, the film in general was a very successful film in France, both with critics and audiences. But I'm just referring to a review, I think it was Jacques Rivette who actually made that criticism. <laughs> Jacques Rivette, the, the crankiest reviewer in the history of cinema. God love him. <laughs> Well, I mean, Melville is known for his gangster films, but when you look at his filmography, what vies for that spot uh, as long as far as how many movies he made in the gangster genre versus the resistance genre, I mean, he made at least three films that are very solidly about the resistance, and it felt like he just 
kept going back and forth between those, you know, with Science of the Sea and then Bob Flambert, but then you get Leanne Morin and then you get, you know, these films and then you have, you know, where he's, he just keeps getting better and better and better. You have Les Samurai and then that's followed by Army of Shadows and then ending it out with Les Circle Ruse and Un Flick. So it's just like he's going back and forth between, am I talking about gangsters? Am I talking about the resistance? So I can see that there is probably, like you were saying, this whole idea of these people on the outside and not part of the mainstream. Even when you look at uh, Army of Shadows, you've got uh, Lino Ventura in there, who is just such a such a little twist on his character from the second breath. You know, it's not, not like he's that far distant from the one character to the other character. I love it. Yeah. He really is somebody who I don't think has a bad film. And I mean, it seems like people don't. So the first couple films he made were melodramas and even the Silence de la Mer is sort of a melodrama. And I even think those are amazing. I mean, they might not have the sort of trademark Melville kind of genre nods that his later films do, but they still have that same tone of everything is miserable, trust no one, everyone's going to die. <laughs> Les Enfants Tabli, excuse my French, is primarily thought of as being a cocktail film. I know, but it still has the same, like, if you watch back-to-back Les Enfants Terribles and When You Read This Letter, which is this very depressing romantic melodrama that he made with Juliet Greco, they have very similar tones. I've I've rarely even seen a reference to it. Bootlegs, my friend. (laughs) I was desperate. I was desperate to see it. Oh, yeah. You hang out with those kind of people. Okay. Yes. No, for a lot of years. I mean, the first uh, copy of Magnet of Doom that I ever saw was this beat to shit. I think it was projected on a wall and recorded off of that. And it was just pink as all get out. It was nasty, 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 my friend. That was on TCM uh, like a couple months ago. Oh, it's magical. I wouldn't know since Xfinity has removed TCM. I T-vote it. Well, now it is available on DVD. You can get that. You can get Two Men in Manhattan. But for a long time, these films yeah, were I just... Yeah, I had to see that as a bootleg, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. They were nearly impossible to find. I remember as I was re-watching The Second Breath yesterday, I was like, this seems so familiar, but in a different way than I'm familiar with a film. And then I finally realized that I had helped marry up the subtitles with a really nice version of it that I imported from France. So I had subtitles that I managed to get from a VHS and then had the DVD copy of it. And I was there marrying the two. And so, yeah, I'm like intimately familiar with that movie in a weird way. But that's what makes being a film fan so exciting is when you have to when you have to sort of like wander off the beaten path and explore no man's land for a while. (laughs) Yeah, as we're going through weird sites trying to find rare Czech films and are there English subtitles available or can I take this file that's actually in Serbian and maybe translate it into English? Will that be good enough? The adventure never ends. I have bought more than my share of bootlegs, I'll admit it. 
like I said, it was really tough to get these films. I mean, for a long time, it was like Bob the Flambeur and Le Dulo were the only VHS things I could find by him. And Le Samurai was just this mysterious thing that I heard about. Le Circle Rouge was something that I heard about. I mean, it took a long time for these to come to VHS, to DVD, and now to Blu-ray. Not even all of them are on Blu-ray yet. And it's just... It's yeah, it's difficult. I mean, when I was reading, uh, I'm trying to remember which article it was. They were saying, "Oh yeah, he did the short 24 hours in the life of a clown, which is believed to be lost." It's like, no, they found that, but for a lot of years, it was gone, and you could not see that. It really hasn't been only until recently, within I think the last 10, 15 years or so, that Army of Shadows has gained the status that it has, and it was probably due to a uh, restoration or something, and it, it it seemed when it hit, uh, started hitting a revival circuit and everything, like it's almost like a new Melville film, the way it was approached. Yeah, and that's one of the things that honestly kind of frustrates me a little bit is this sense that you have to have something be named as part of this canon of good films. It's like. I get that these are genre films and obviously all of us love film noir. And at this point, there are now many, many critics and academics who think there are some, you know, world cinema masterpieces in film noir. But for a long time, people thought crime films were not worthwhile, like classic cinema. And I think it's sort of gone by the decades. It's like, the films from the 30s and 40s were finally considered to be important. And then we sort of move on to some later films. But even now, the way the way people talk about crime thrillers is like, it's just this sort of cheap genre. It's not, it's not something that can be real cinema. And so I'm glad that Melville has finally like, you know, now you don't have to dig in the armpit or the ass crack of the internet to find, to find some of his movies. But at the same time, it really frustrates me that things like army of shadows are being appreciated as classics only more recently. Cause it's like, what the hell film did those people see 30 years ago? Like it's incredible. I don't understand how you could watch that and think like, well, this is too nihilistic or this isn't realistic enough. It's like, get your heads out of your asses. Well, even still now amongst Melville stuff, I mean, I mentioned, uh, well, actually you mentioned Two Men in Manhattan and that it gets dumped on, Umflick gets dumped on, Magnet of Doom gets dumped on. It's like these are the movies that, well, not Umflick necessarily, but uh, Two yeah, Men Yeah, no, that and, one too. Well, uh, no, I was just saying Two Men and Magnet were so difficult to see for so many years and then people just dump on them. And it's like, have you really seen this movie? But yeah, I agree with you. Unflick gets dumped on a ton and I love it. I mean, that train heist, forget about it. It's amazing. Yeah, that really grinds my gears. So I like total highlight of my career last year, I got to do commentaries for Ledulos and for Unflick. And talking about that scene in Unflick, like for my commentary, it makes me so angry because like if you go back and you read especially the reviews from when the film came out, they're like, this is terrible. This is ridiculous. 
he did something wrong with these camera lenses. Why is this film so blue? <laughs> and it's like, have you not seen any of his other films? Like, he uses specific color tinting. He does it in Le Samurai. Like, it's not like he only did it for this one film. And I had people write me on the internet, like, oh, I listened to your commentary, and it never occurred to me that he did those things on purpose. It's like, what? What? He was so intentional with everything. How could it not occur to you? It make, it upsets me. <laughs> I need to take a breath. That storm at the beginning and the way that you see it building and everything. I mean, yeah, th- his use of the cool color palette and that and like Samurai. I mean, oh, yeah. And then to use Delon and those two and in Le Circle Rouge, just it was such a great relationship. I mean, Delon is just he was such a perfect Melville protagonist, he especially really that, was. you know, you give us that. I, I think there's a, a voiceover at the beginning of Un Flick that we never come back to. So it's like you're in his head. You identify with him, but then, you know, he's just such a sphinx throughout so much of that movie. Okay, you guys, I have a copy of Uflick that I have yet to open. I haven't seen the film, so no spoilers, please. Oh, all you have to know is that it's amazing. And I'll listen to your uh, commentary on it. I may watch it with the commentary the first time through. I don't know. Well, I hope you like it. Have you guys had a chance to see Codename Melville? No, actually. What? Okay. What? I threw it in the Dropbox for y'all. Um, sorry that I didn't throw it in there earlier. It is a documentary about uh, Melville, and it mostly deals with his war years and then how that would play into other things and how you would see things through his films about his work in the resistance. They had a little bit about the gangster films in there, not nearly as much as, uh, the, um, uh, the non gangster stuff, not as much. Uh, it was more about the resistance films. Um, but yeah, it's really worth a look. I highly recommend it. He's such an interesting character because, he gave a lot of interviews. He was not shy about giving interviews, but he really wouldn't talk about the nuts. He would talk about the filmmaking process, but he wouldn't necessarily talk about what things meant that much is what I would see. And I don't know if you guys agree with that, but like in interviews, he would talk about film and the passion for film, but he never really gave away the store. I think he tried to culti- cultivate an image with the Stetson hat, the sunglasses, and his just personal style. And at that time, this is around the time when there was a cult surrounding film directors. So you'd see that. Uh, Clouseau is another one who, with the pipe and everything, these are guys who I think were consciously trying to cultivate an image. Oh, definitely. Melville was, you know, with his, I guess apparently he, he liked to drive American cars and, uh, and all the interviews and stuff. He was soaking that attention up. Yeah, he was just definitely just one of many. I mean, probably the single biggest perpetrator is Fritz Lang, who was so controlling of his own image that he hid entire parts of his biography and (laughs) told this sort of, especially in terms of directors who are related to the war or in some way involved, Everybody refers to this story about how, you know, he sat down and had a meeting with Goebbels and Goebbels wanted him to be the sort of chief 
Nazi filmmaker, and the next day he left the country. But it's like, sorry, that that doesn't really chalk up to actual history. And I think a lot of them, Melville included, were incredible storytellers, and they made their own lives part of their stories. And I don't, I I think it's sort of delightful to find out when they maybe necessarily colored outside of the lines a bit. But I don't think there's anything wrong with it, I guess. I think it's just part of the whole the whole package of being an artist, I guess. Yeah, one of the articles I read actually called into question Melville being part of the Resistance, which was a little upsetting to me because that seems like it's part of his mythology. But at the same time, and I believe that he was, and I was glad this codename Melville uh, film kind of goes into that a little bit more. But I was glad to hear um, – it's so amazing to watch the interviews with Volker Schlorndorf through the years <laughs> because there's one in codename Melville, there's one on the Criterion, there's one on the Kino disc. So you get to watch this guy age through the years <laughs> and talk, tell these stories. And he's great, too, because you would think – two interviews with a filmmaker about another filmmaker, he's going to tell the exact same stories, but he never repeats himself in any of these interviews that I've seen. But I, the thing that I like that Schlorndorf said was, yeah, he was part of the resistance, but he never talked about it. He never had war stories that he was going to sit and boast about. That was not his style. And I was like, oh, that's really nice. Yeah, he took it very seriously. And that's maybe kind of how you know that for him it wasn't just storytelling and it wasn't boasting these were experiences that affected him very very deeply and i mean his movies are basically all about trauma and violence and this sort of toxic masculinity that always ends with all of the characters dying And we cannot forget that he was a Jewish filmmaker during this time. That he he lost people in the war as well. So it um, you know, but he never plays that up. Instead of telling that story, he tells uh, Leon Morin priest. You know, it's, it's interesting that he's dealing with a, a a priest character and that he sets up. I love the the Schlorndorf was saying like he saw the idea of the priest and the communist and Leon Morin as being on opposite sides as the cops and the gangsters and something like Bob Flambert, that he's able to bring out this, this uh, uh, not rivalry, but this uh, antagonism between these two groups and play them off of each other, no matter which two groups they were. Well, and they're all always outsiders as well. Whether it's one side or the other doesn't seem to matter. Exactly. All right, we are going to take a break, play a few messages from our sponsor, and a preview for next week's show. This is an American Red Cross blood donation alert. We are currently facing a severe blood shortage during this coronavirus outbreak. Healthy blood and platelet donors are asked to make an appointment to give now. Donating blood is safe and can help save lives. Cancer patients, accident victims, and so many others continue to need life-saving transfusions. So please schedule your appointment now by visiting redcrossblood.org or calling 1-800-RED-CROSS. You can make a difference. How to continue a television series after a major actor has left the cast. Part 2. The Blake 7 Method. Remove the character from the scripts. Introduce a new replacement character. Eventually, few of the original characters will be present, and the series will barely resemble its original form. For more about British science fiction television, listen to the British Invaders podcast. www.britishinvaders.com 
tuning into Sci-Fi TV. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I'm Brent Barrett. I'm Kevin Batchelder. I'm Wendy Hembrock. The Viewer's Guide to Genre Television. Welcome, everyone, to a special Supernatural-focused bonus Hello, everyone, show. and welcome to The Fae Files. A family of podcasts for the genre-loving television viewer. Welcome to Saturday Bee Movie Reel. Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Study welcome Group. Welcome to the top genre characters of all time countdown. And tonight, we're going to be talking about Game of Thrones Season 3. Find us at TuningIntoSciFiTV.com. Racontez-moi donc la suite de notre histoire. That's right, French Month continues next week when we look at last year at Marion Bad. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-host, Ken and Sam. So, Sam, what has been keeping you busy? I have been working super hard to finish a book that's due this summer that I can't talk too much about yet, but it does in some way involve Melville. I, you know, am always having the sort of problem where I I turn in my, you know, film criticism, things like commentaries and stuff, and I can never remember what has been announced yet or not. Uh, so instead of talking about something recent, I guess I should just mention that I did those two Melville commentaries for Kino last year. So if you're interested in hearing me yammer on more about La Dulos, there's that one, and then there's also Unflick, which is his final film that, as we mentioned earlier, gets trash-talked a lot, but which I think is absolutely wonderful. And that Kino disc is fantastic. I highly recommend that people pick that up, because it really the, the extras on that are really good. And I have to say that Kino gives criteria to run for their money a lot of times. Yeah, they really have been doing an amazing job, especially in the last couple of years, they had just, you know, almost every film they put out has a commentary if if they're allowed to include one. And they really with those Melville releases, there are a couple of others too. I think they did four or five, maybe four total last year. And they really made the effort to give them a great treatment. And I think they, their Kino usually is has sales pretty often, so you should buy them all. And Ken, how about you? What's going on in your world, sir? My band, we recently lost one of our band members. He passed away, had nothing to do with coronavirus, but it was just, uh, you know, 
So uh, the 10th anniversary of our last release, actually, I'm going to upload it to uh, SoundCloud, and then every month for the foreseeable future, we're going to be doing something, and we're going to <clears throat> upload on a monthly basis archiving. I'm taking a lot of time to archive a lot of stuff, a lot of music from a long period of time. So that's a project. I'm not going to be doing any travel like I usually do in the foreseeable future. So that's what uh, we're going to be doing. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. you also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.